This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Diana Keisner's The Enchanted April by Elizabeth von Arnim Chapter 4 It had been arranged that Mrs. Arbuthnot and Mrs. Wilkins, travelling together, should arrive at San Salvatore on the evening of March 31st. The owner, who told them how to get there, appreciated their disinclination to begin their time in it on April 1st, and Lady Caroline and Mrs. Fisher, as yet unacquainted and therefore under no obligations to bore each other on the journey, for only towards the end would they find out by a process of sifting who they were, were to arrive on the morning of April 2nd. In this way everything would be got nicely ready for the two, who seemed, in spite of the equality of the sharing, yet to have something about them of guests. There were disagreeable incidents towards the end of March, when Mrs. Wilkins, her heart in her mouth, and her face a mixture of guilt, terror, and a determination, told her husband that she had been invited to Italy, and he declined to believe it. Of course he declined to believe it. Nobody had ever invited his wife to Italy before. There was no precedent. He required proofs. The only proof was Mrs. Arbuthnot, and Mrs. Wilkins had produced her, but after what entreaties, what passionate persuading! Mrs. Arbuthnot had not imagined she would have to face Mr. Wilkins and say things to him that were short of the truth, and it brought home to her what she had for some time suspected, that she was slipping more and more away from God. Indeed, the whole of March was filled with unpleasant, anxious moments. It was an uneasy month. Mrs. Arbuthnot's conscience, made supersensitive by years of pampering, could not reconcile what she was doing with its own high standard of what was right. It gave her little peace. It nudged her at her prayers. It punctuated her entreaties for divine guidance with disconcerting questions such as, Are you not a hypocrite? Do you really mean that? Would you not, frankly, be disappointed if that prayer were granted? The prolonged wet raw weather was on the side, too, of her conscience, producing far more sickness than usual among the poor. They had bronchitis, they had fevers, there was no end to the distress. And here she was, going off, spending precious money on going off, simply and solely to be happy. One woman, one woman being happy. And these piteous multitudes— she was unable to look the vicar in the face. He did not know. Nobody knew what she was going to do. And from the very beginning she was unable to look anybody in the face. 
she excused herself from making speeches appealing for money. How could she stand up and ask people for money when she herself was spending so much on her own selfish pleasure? Nor did it help her or quiet her that, having actually told Frederick, in her desire to make up for what she was squandering, that she would be grateful if he would let her have some money, he instantly gave her a check for a hundred pounds. He asked no questions. She was scarlet. He looked at her a moment and then looked away. It was a relief to Frederick that she should take some money. She gave it all immediately to the organization she worked with and found herself more tangled in doubts than ever. Mrs. Wilkins, on the contrary, had no doubts. She was quite certain that it was a most proper thing to have a holiday and altogether right and beautiful to spend one's own hard-collected savings on being happy. "'Think how much nicer we shall be when we come back,' she said to Mrs. Arbuthnot, encouraging that pale lady. No, Mrs. Wilkins had no doubts, but she had fears, and March was for her, too, an anxious month, with the unconscious Mr. Wilkins coming back daily to his dinner and eating his fish in the silence of imagined security.' So things happen so awkwardly. It really is astonishing how awkwardly they happen. Mrs. Wilkins, who was very careful all this month to give Mellersh only the food he liked, buying it and hovering over its cooking with a zeal more than common, succeeded so well that Mellersh was pleased, definitely pleased. So much pleased that he began to think he might after all, have married the right wife, instead of, as he had frequently suspected, the wrong one. The result was that on the third Sunday in the month, Mrs. Wilkins had made up her trembling mind that on the fourth Sunday, there being five in that march, and it being on the fifth of them that she and Mrs. Arbuthnot were to start, she would tell Mellersh of her invitation. On the third Sunday, then, after a very well-cooked lunch in which the Yorkshire pudding had melted in his mouth and the apricot tart had been so perfect that he ate it all, Mellersh, smoking his cigar by the brightly burning fire, the while hail gusts banged on the window, said, "'I am thinking of taking you to Italy for Easter,' and paused for her astounded and grateful ecstasy. None came." The silence in the room, except for the hail hitting the windows and the gay roar of the fire, was complete. Mrs. Wilkins could not speak. She was dumbfounded. The next Sunday was the day she had meant to break her news for him, and she had not yet even prepared the form of words in which she would break it. Mr. Wilkins, who had not been abroad since before the war, and was noticing with increasing disgust, as week followed week of wind and rain, the peculiar, persistent vileness of the weather, and slowly conceived a desire to get away from England for Easter. He was doing very well in his business. He could afford a trip. Switzerland was useless in April. There was a familiar sound about Easter and Italy, 
to Italy he would go, and as it would cause comment if he did not take his wife, take her he must. Besides, she would be useful. A second person was always useful in a country whose language one did not speak, for holding things, for waiting with the luggage. He had expected an explosion of gratitude and excitement. The absence of it was incredible. She could not, he concluded, have heard. Probably she was absorbed in some foolish daydream. It was regrettable how childish she remained. He turned his head. Their chairs were in front of the fire and looked at her. She was staring straight into the fire, and it was no doubt the fire that made her face so red. I am thinking, he repeated, raising his clear, cultivated voice and speaking with acerbity, for inattention at such a moment was deplorable, of taking you to Italy for Easter. Did you not hear me? Yes, she had heard him, and she had been wondering at the extraordinary coincidence, really most extraordinary. She was just going to tell him how how she had been invited. A friend had invited her. Easter, too. Easter was in April, wasn't it? Her friend had a, had a house there. In fact, Mrs. Wilkins, driven by terror, guilt, and surprise, had been more incoherent, if possible, than usual. It was a dreadful afternoon. Mellersh, profoundly indignant, besides having his intended treat coming back on him like a blessing to roost, cross-examined her with the utmost severity. He demanded that she refuse the invitation. He demanded that, since she had so outrageously accepted it without consulting him, she should write and cancel her acceptance. Finding himself up against an unsuspected, shocking rock of obstinacy in her, he then declined to believe she had been invited to Italy at all. He declined to believe in this Mrs. Arbuthnot, of whom till that moment he had never heard, and it was only when the gentle creature was brought round, with such difficulty, with such a desire on her part to throw the whole thing up rather than tell Mr. Wilkins less than the truth, and herself endorsed his wife's statements that he was able to give them credence. He could not but believe Mrs. Arbuthnot. She produced the precise effect on him that she did on tube officials. She hardly needed to say anything. But that made no difference to her conscience, which knew, and would not let her forget, that she had given him an incomplete impression. Do you, asked her conscience, see any real difference between an incomplete impression and a completely stated lie, God sees none. The remainder of March was a confused bad dream. Both Mrs. Arbuthnot and Mrs. Wilkins were shattered. Try as they would not to, both felt extraordinarily guilty, and when on the morning of the 30th they did finally get off, there was no exhilaration about the departure, no holiday feeling at all. "'We've been too good, much too good,' Mrs. Wilkins kept on murmuring, 
as they walked up and down the platform at Victoria, having arrived there an hour before they need have. And that's why we feel as though we're doing wrong. We're browbeaten. We're not any longer real human beings. Real human beings aren't ever as good as we've been. Oh, she clenched her thin hands. To think that we ought to be so happy now, here on the very station, actually starting, and we're not. And it's being spoiled for us, just simply because we've spoilt them. What have we done? What have we done, I should like to know? She inquired of Mrs. Arbuthnot, patiently pacing, did not ask who she meant by them, because she knew. Mrs. Wilkins meant their husbands, persisting in her assumption that Frederick was as indignant as Mellersh over the departure of his wife, whereas Frederick did not even know his wife had gone. Mrs. Arbuthnot, always silent about him, had said nothing of this to Mrs. Wilkins. Frederick went too deep into her heart for her to talk about him. He was having an extra bout of work finishing another of those dreadful books, and had been away practically continually the last few weeks, and was away when she left. Why should she tell him beforehand? Sure as she so miserably was that he would have no objection to anything she did, she merely wrote him a note and put it on the hall table, ready for him, if and when he should come home. She said she was going away for a month's holiday, as she needed a rest, and she had not had one for so long, and that Gladys, the efficient parlour-maid, had orders to see to his comforts. She did not say where she was going. There was no reason why she should. He would not be interested. He would not care. The day was wretched, blustering, and wet. The crossing was atrocious and they were very sick. But after having been very sick, just to arrive at Calais and not be sick was happiness, and it was there that the real splendor of what they were doing first began to warm their benumbed spirits. It got hold of Mrs. Wilkins first, and spread from her like a rose-colored flame over her pale companion. Melurge at Calais where they restored themselves with souls, because of Mrs. Wilkins' desire to eat a soul Mellersh wasn't having. Mellersh at Calais had already begun to dwindle and seem less important. None of the French porters knew him. Not a single official at Calais cared a fig for Mellersh. In Paris there was no time to think of him, because their train was late and they only just caught the Turin train at the Gare de Lyon. And by the afternoon of the next day, when they got into Italy, England, Frederick, Mellersh, the vicar, the poor, Hampstead, the club, Schulbred, everybody and everything, the whole inflamed, sore dreariness had faded to the dimness of a dream. End of chapter 4